Welcome to the Magnificast, a podcast about Christianity and leftist politics. I'm Dean, a Catholic PhD student in philosophy at the Institute for Christian Studies in Toronto. I'm Matt. I teach media studies at Greenville University in Greenville, Illinois. My research interests are media archaeology and cultural theory. But before we get started, uh, we want to introduce a new Magnificast feature, voicemail. <laughs> between uh, between voicemail and, and the email newsletter that we just started, we're going back in time actually in the podcast. <laughs> That's right. Uh, the new feature is pigeons. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, well, we made a Google Voice number where you can call us and leave us a message. Uh, the number is... Okay, I'll, re- I'll wait for you to write this down, because I know you're going to. The number is 815-408-0745. So you can give us a call and tell us something cool about your church, your party, your cadre, uh, your uh, revolutionary group uh, fighting against the government is doing, and uh, you can tell us about it, and we'll we'll play it on the podcast. Uh, you can, I don't know, uh, give us a question that you might have. You can uh, tell us about something we got totally wrong in the last episode. God knows there are probably things. Uh, you can, you can <laughs> ask us. Yeah, he knows. I'm sorry, or she knows. God knows. I don't know. <laughs> the gender thing. It's important. <laughs> uh, you can uh, ask us, like, general life advice. Uh, we'll be bad at answering that, but, you know, you could do it um so you can also give us general life advice oh yeah that would be a lot of that that'd be good i have a lot of questions about taxes just in like and about doing them (laughs) (laughs) uh so you can call us you can tell us your name or you can be anonymous i don't uh you know like whatever whatever you want um fake names are are fun so come up with a a good one uh well (laughs) if you do it anonymously though you have to have a guy fox mask on that's true the entire time we'll know We'll know. Uh, so if you call in, there's a pretty good chance you'll hear your voice on the next episode of the Magnificast. That's neat. How cool. We're very cool people. Oh my gosh, invest in this. <laughs> <laughs> so the number, again, is uh, 815-408-0745. Uh, we'll see how this goes. You could be on the podcast. <laughs> you, you can tell by the desperation in uh, Matt's voice that we're like really hoping that, that this goes well. So uh, yeah, please uh, send us... <laughs> Send us your hot takes. We took tens of minutes to set this up, so please participate. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> uh, so this week on The Magnificast, we're talking with Matt Sitman, an editor at Commonweal who recently wrote an article for Descent magazine called Against Moral Austerity on the Need for a Christian Left. So in the episode, we talk about uh, morality and politics, as you might suspect, uh, liberalism and the left, public and private reason, what it means to build coalitions and how super hard and annoying it is. Uh, We talk about private property and more. So thanks again, Matt, for stopping by and uh, hope you like the podcast. Hey, so Matt S. Matt Sitman, that's what we're going to call you on this podcast, Matt S. Uh, thanks for coming on the podcast. It's really cool. Um, it's been, I don't know, fun to to chat with you on the internet, but it's more fun now, I think, to you know get a chance to, to ask you some real life questions and see your face and all that sort of thing uh, in virtual real life, I guess. Um, so usually on the podcast, we just start off asking, you know, what's up? What have you been up to? Um, what, what's your day job? What do you like to do? Uh, yeah, th- think of this as your as your Christian leftist dating profile, I guess. <laughs> uh, well, the short version is I'm an associate editor at Commonweal Magazine, which is a 90, I believe this fall will be 93 years old, a 93-year-old kind of liberal Catholic magazine. Um, and that's my day job, and it takes up a lot of my time. Uh, but I live here in New York, and... Uh, I write essays for other places. This is the second, the essay we'll talk about today is the second kind of fairly major essay I've written for Descent. And uh, it's that's a magazine I'm really proud to be associated with. And otherwise, it's, you know, New York's great. And I, I'm, I'm really happy here. I never aspired to live or move to New York City, but I came here a few years ago to, I was the literary editor of a, a publication called The Dish, Andrew Sullivan's old blog and website. And that's what brought me to New York. And then when the dish uh, closed up shop, 
after about 15 years of, of Andrew blogging and killing himself, <laughs> um, you know, living, living online for that long, uh, we decided to, to end the dish. And shortly thereafter, I started a Commonwealth. So um, that's that's my life in New York. Uh, cool. That sounds like a like a neat, um, like millennial HBO story. Um, I feel like you could, you could probably, <laughs> yeah. And, and I have a little bit of an academic background. I'm a failed academic. You might say I, I was a, a PhD student at Georgetown for a while and I was a political theorist by training. Um, so oh, cool. that, so my kind of academic background is in political theory and, um, uh, I, I did a lot of work on the, the reformation and Calvin's political thought, and and I was interested in so Calvin and uh, early modern thought, Hobbes, Rousseau, and Calvin and Hobbes, um, <laughs> and um, and actually that was in a sort of pretty big factor in my eventually becoming Catholic. So I'm a uh, well, I'm not a convert. Uh, I was received into the church. I was a Christian already. I was Episcopalian, but uh, sort of reading so much about the Reformation was. It, it it factored into my my becoming Catholic. Uh, spending that much time in Calvin's institutes <laughs> pushed me. That's pushed really me fascinating. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. That's funny because uh, I'm a Catholic PhD student at a Calvinist school. So, uh, oh really? I get it. I didn't realize. Uh, yep. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I don't know. It is and it isn't. It, it actually it very is Calvinist. Uh, it's it's the Institute for Christian Studies and it is associated with the Christian Reformed Church, which is a Dutch Calvinist. Um, group uh but yeah me and another catholic are the only two phd students accepted the year that i was here so you know they're very uh i don't know friendly <laughs> good good uh matt matt b what have you been up to um been working on this paper proposal for the entire morning uh and most of the afternoon trying to get it right just doing this uh this paper on uh media history and um imaginary media history which is like a weird thing but it's real look it up i don't know trying to get my my 250 word proposal just right not doing it failing terribly at it that's all i've been doing today R writing the same thing over and over again trying to figure out like what i'm <laughs> doing wrong pretty frustrated good time to talk to me <laughs> yeah 250 words is like a very weird box to force uh you know a, a potentially 25 minute paper into <laughs> yeah totally i remember those days of the the abstracts and the uh conference proposals and yeah <laughs> yeah i don't really miss it i have to say i i like being a magazine editor more than i ever yeah. liked being in academia yeah i hate i hate writing proposals but i love going to conferences especially if they're in nice yeah. places so that's what i'm in it for uh, actually my, Dean, my 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 one visit to toronto was uh, they had the American Political Science Association conference there, like uh, I don't know, circa 2010. That was oh, my, nice. My, my my one visit to Toronto. <laughs> yeah. But I liked the city. I was impressed by it. I I was jumping off your going to nice places for conferences. I actually was impressed. Yeah, yeah, Toronto's awesome. I went there last year for a conference too, and uh, the conference was whatever. But I got, I hung out with Dean, <laughs> so it was cool, and we discussed yeah, the city. Yeah, it is. It was a good time. Uh, yeah, I feel like it's also just conferences are the best place to meet people doing weird stuff that you wouldn't have thought about. Um, so I appreciate that. But yeah, I don't know. The grind of uh, just desperately pitching papers. I don't know. It's rough. Um, yeah. Though that that conference in Toronto we were at, Dean, that one guy, uh, I tried to introduce myself to this guy who is from St. Louis, which is near where I live. So I was going to be nice and like a like an outgoing person. And I introduced myself to him, and then he asked me if I could, like, uh, help him fix his computer at that time. And I was very upset. <laughs> I was like, why would you ask me that? Because <laughs> like, like, you're young and wear glasses. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> so I was like, uh, no, see you later. <laughs> it was bad. Dean, what have you been doing, man? <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, not not too much. Um, you know, writing some articles. Uh, I'm a journalist at America Magazine. Um, also, I'm at... B and I uh, started a um, a newsletter for the podcast, so I spent a lot of the week like figuring that out and playing with it, and that was really fun. Um, I have like a weird, uh, I don't know, I get a lot of pleasure from like editing software online. I don't know why. I should have been, uh, you know, a, a design layout person or something, maybe in a former life uh, or a future life. Um, but yeah, that that's been good. Uh, also, this morning I went to the Royal Ontario Museum. 
with uh, my partner, Emily the nanny. She nannies two kids. They're seven and four-ish. Uh, and then with a friend um, that I knew on the internet, James McCormick, who uh, also has two kids, um, four and like two-ish, I guess. Uh, so that was really fun, like romping through natural history with a bunch of little kids who were like very into dinosaurs. Uh, yeah, it's a good way to, to spend an afternoon. So that was nice. <laughs> nice. Yeah, sounds good. Yeah. And I, I should add tonight is actually the Descent launch party for the issue. So oh, cool. it's short, not long after we're done recording this, I'll head to Brooklyn, naturally, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, hang out with uh, the Descent folks. Awesome. Well, you can tell them all about this uh, this episode, and um, hopefully you can say that we were nice to you and it was a good experience. So we'll find out. Yeah, well, <laughs> it remains to be seen. We'll see. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, cool. Well, on that note, uh, let's go ahead and get into it. Let's see, see how it goes. Um, Matt asks, maybe you could just start by giving a little bit of a summary of the article that you wrote for people who haven't read it. So, uh, for those that don't know, this is an article that appeared in Descent recently. It's called Against Moral Austerity, How Religion Can Revitalize the Left. Um, yeah, so all those words are interesting to us. Could you maybe just give a little pitch? Yeah, sure. Um, it might be helpful to give a little bit of the background to the essay, where it came from. So the editor of Descent, Michael Kazin, was one of my teachers in grad school. So I've known Kazin for over a decade now. And, uh, you know, he just sent me a note and he said, so are you thinking about anything uh, about religion in light of Trump's victory and kind of the debates on the left? And so I I said, yeah, this is, uh, I am thinking about it. And what I came up with was the essay that that uh, just dropped in dissent. It's uh, in the summer issue. And the basic argument, I suppose, is that um, when, well, let me take a step back. Oftentimes, I think, you know, when, when Democrats lose or, uh, you know, there's, there's always a refrain that uh, they need they need to understand religion better. You know, the, the statistics, statistics will get trotted out that, you know, a certain percentage of evangelicals voted for the Republican candidate or a certain number of Roman Catholics voted for the Republican candidate. And, you know, this is a narrative that's been the first time I really, really remember hearing it was when John Kerry lost in 2004. I mean, I, w- I was pretty young. I was, I don't know, maybe 21, 22 when during that election. But I remember the God gap was like one of the major narratives that came out of that. And so, this essay is kind of, and but oftentimes that means that people say, well, Democrats need to get religion, and that mainly means moderating their stances on social issues. That's what getting religion means. And mm-hmm. the argument I wanted to make here was actually, um, first of all, in terms of the debates on the broad liberal left, it's actually the left that is better suited to um, kind of align with or. Uh, uh, work together with religious people, or that should be the case, uh, based on um, what I think is a shared understanding of what human beings deserve by virtue of being human. Um, and that especially matters, I think, economically in terms of healthcare, uh, sort of what we provide people, how what we think people deserve. That concept of dessert is what I thought was the main shared value between religious folks or what religious folks should believe, and the left. And the essay is, you know, I would get at that toward the end of the essay, but I really start the essay by trying to, you know, I wrote this for dissent. I didn't write it for Commonweal, so I was writing for a largely secular audience, I think. And so a fair amount of the essay is me kind of making the case that this isn't bad or dangerous to engage with religion in this way. Um, And then as I go on, uh, as I said, I, I kind of spell out toward the end uh, sort of a, a broad framework for what I think those shared values are between religious people and the left uh, after I make the case that religion's not scary or dangerous. <laughs> too scary or too dangerous. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, cool. Um, so uh, there's, there's a lot of really interesting points in this uh, essay. I think Dean, have, Dean and I have some, some good notes to work from here. But before we even get to like the actual text, uh, mm-hmm. I was wondering if we could talk about the subtitle for just a, just a minute, like a clarifying point, I guess. This is about how, mm-hmm. how religion can revitalize the left. And I wonder, like, uh, this is, like, a stupid question, but I think one worth asking still. Uh, like, what is the left in this sense? Like, is it everyone that's, uh, uh, you know, a Democrat and not a Republican? Is it people who are not Democrats or Republicans? Like, how do we conceptualize that? 
Yeah, no, that's a good question. I mean, I play a little bit fast and loose with terms like mainstream liberalism, the left, the broad liberal left. Uh, and these terms are contested and a bit amorphous. But I, in this case, I mean people who are uh, not just Democrats or not just broadly left of center, but but the left in terms of probably being some kind of social Democrat, um, the left in terms of probably at least having some kind of critical relationship toward mainstream liberalism. Um, and so I mean, yeah, the left as in, in a certain distinction to liberalism, uh, if that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah, it does. If I'm still being too vague, I can I can say more. But uh, in in that that I'm not tr I'm I'm both trying to not be too particular in my use of the term, uh, and I'm you know, but I but I do think it's a it's still a meaningful term in it, and and I'm using it in the the sense I described. Yeah, that makes sense to me. Um, and I guess to like by virtue of writing for dissent, you can kind of count on your audience to hopefully have some good like points of reference. Um, and that's great. Uh, I wonder, could you say a little bit more about how leftism differs from liberalism? Because that's like a big thing in that's slowly emerging in popular articles, I think, in a in a helpful way. Um, and the trouble is, you know, a lot of liberals uh, in particular are reading those challenges and thinking, well, hey, I'm the left because I'm not, you know, on the right, if the right means Republicans or whatever. And then it's kind of the leftist's job in a way or the burden is on them to kind of say, well, we mean something different and here's what that is. So, yeah, uh, just to maybe build a little bit more on what you were just saying, could you give like a, a short, um, yeah, this is what I mean by the left in distinction to, say, liberalism? Yeah, sure. No, you're right. I mean, and this is a, a kind of odd American debate because we use liberal in a way that's different than I think like Europeans would use the term. So in America, liberal means, yeah, kind of like broadly, almost generically left of center. Um, but really, it's it's a philosophical or it's a tradition of political philosophy that goes back, I don't know, to Hobbes, Locke, um, you know, the beginning of the early modern period. And I think, you know, it's um, if I were to identify a few key points in it, it it's, it's individualistic, for one, I think. I mean, uh, the liberal tradition begins with sort of positing individuals in the state of nature who contract together to form governments and societies. Um, <clears throat> so just at the level of a kind of uh, philosophical anthropology, I'm not a liberal in that sense, uh, a kind of individualist. Um, Check mark. <laughs> right, right, right. Um, but uh, also the way I use the term liberal in um, in the piece, is it, uh, it, it's, um, how should I put it? Uh, especially with regard to religion, um, I, I describe liberalism as the organization of separations. And that's a term I borrow from the French a political philosopher, Pierre Menon. And it, it's, you know, kind of what one thing liberalism does is try to really narrow the scope of politics. Uh, and uh, it, it often, or at least I make the case in the, the essay, it can mean that what you think politics is, is incredibly narrow. And there's not a lot of space for moral critiques of, of what's going on. And uh, there's a sense in which you, that term, the organization of separation, it can mean the separation of powers, the separation of church and state, but also the separation of sort of uh, the economy from political control or democratic control. So, you know, uh, again, we could, it's a, liberalism is a contested term, but I mean it in the sense I've described. And, uh, well, I guess I've been I've been rambling. Uh, you can interject or ask me further questions or. Uh... Yeah, I'm sure we'll circle back to some of the stuff kind of later on in the conversation. But I figured I, I think you were right, Matt B, to kind of get that out on the table anyway um, for folks who are, I guess, uninitiated. Um, uh, yeah. So um, one thing that Matt and I have been talking about, Matt B and I have been talking about sort of as we've been preparing to chat with you is about the relationship between politics and morality, right? Which you're really kind of making a case that we, we shouldn't be too afraid of, of morals uh, in political language, even though there might be good reasons historically that people have felt that way or whatever. Uh, you're saying, hey, listen, don't 
don't let that scare you off from uh you know being friendly toward folks who who want to use moral language or find it useful and you give some powerful examples to why that is um i guess uh one one other like clarifying question we could start off with the beginning and then we'll we'll move on to like actual things you really wrote <laughs> uh is uh like um what do you think that relationship is between politics and morality which you articulate in throughout this whole essay um you know if you had to make a pitch to people in dissent as you did here if you had to like summarize it um you know why are morals important in political vision for the left well i think politics is inescapably moral and liberalism itself uh to i I do get a little annoyed, even with myself, when I say liberalism says or does or means X, Y, or Z. Right? It's a, it's a, it's a, uh, a, a broad and uh, a broad tradition uh, with with you know many mansions in it or mansion with many rooms, whatever the <laughs> phrase would be. You know, so I I, I don't want to be too reductive. Or many mansions is actually a very good good metaphor. Right? Yeah. Right. Um. Um. So I think politics is inescapably moral, and 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 when you say that you don't think that morals should a sort of morals based politics is is good or or it, it, you you're critical of that, I mean you're still positing a moral that's a moral claim in itself. So I just don't think you can ever really escape moral claims in politics. And even if you think that what I've sketched out is dangerous or unwise, that is itself a, a, a moral claim. And one of the things that I think um, liberalism kind of masks is that it uses the language of neutrality to say, oh, like, like there's actually this neutral kind of common ground that we can all... Um, tap into, or there's a kind of common uh, sort of public reason we can all use to debate these things. And uh, I don't know, I'm, I'm skeptical of that claim. Yeah, me too. Um, huh. I, I guess uh, another thing that Dean and I were talking about in terms of morality too, was that um, I think, I think kind of like what you said though, that, that uh, politics is inescapably moral. Um, I guess what it comes down to is like who, who's morality and I guess how that gets shake, like shaked out. Um, because I, I don't know to, I guess that's a confusing, a confusing part to me about the, the title of your essay too, that there's a moral austerity. Cause it seems like there, I mean, there's a, a specific type of moral austerity though, with like another type of morality kind of in there, like a, there's a liberal morality about, about right. centrality mm -hmm. or centralism. That's kind of, uh, ingrained in, in the democratic party. It, it seems. Yeah, no, that's true. And, and if you, and, and that's like a, that's a fair critique of the title, and uh, I, I sort of fell in love with the term moral austerity. I thought, oh, it was kind of clever and got at something, and, and it does <laughs> pair well with, because we, we do know the term austerity from talking about economic policies, especially in the wake of the financial crash of 2008. So I was playing off that a little bit, but right, if, if the critique of my use of moral austerity is that actually liberalism is a form of posits its own morality or it, it posits a, a certain morality under the guise of neutrality or public reason or whatever, uh, that's fair enough. I don't think of it as necessarily like a critique of your title. I don't know. It, yeah. I guess it is a little bit because it, it's just like it's morality in a different register a little bit because there's like uh, yeah. the the one of my favorite parts of this essay, and I guess I'm getting ahead of myself, but where you start talking about Tim Kaine and like his uh, inability to describe about how his like Catholicism affects his religion. It's like that type yeah. of moral austerity where it's like, you're not willing to let uh, like the rich tradition of Catholicism and all of its good and badness, like affect the way you make political mm -hmm. decisions. That seems very ridiculous. Yeah. That is austere in, in that way. So, yeah. So that's, that, that's why I, I kind of gave those examples. Uh, the other one was when, um, when when Bernie went to the Vatican on the eve of the New York primary, oh, yeah. I mean, and and like, listen, like that that can be criticized. Maybe maybe it was a, a fairly obvious ploy to get Catholic voters in New York. Like maybe maybe he maybe it just he shouldn't have left the campaign trail. I mean, there's all kinds of criticisms you can make, but I thought it was really striking that one of them was he violated the separation of church and state by just going to the Vatican. Right. And, and giving a paper on, <laughs> uh, you know, like labor and labor and capital and or, you know, and, and kind of appealing to the church's long tradition of uh, or, you know, about a century long tradition of uh, Catholic social teaching, you know, regarding 
the economy. And, uh, you know, it's just that that blew my mind that that was the criticism made, that it possibly violated the separation. <laughs> and it's just like, like wait, wait till you find out we have an ambassador to the Vatican. <laughs> <laughs> like, and vice versa. Uh, yeah, yeah. yeah. It's, um, it's a, a very so, so dumb that, thing. <laughs> That's such a dumb take. <laughs> yeah, I was just stunned by it. I was really stunned by it. And, and again, you can even be really critical of the Catholic Church and various teachings of the Catholic Church, but that doesn't, you know, being critical of, of the Catholic Church is not the same as saying uh, an old Jewish socialist giving a paper there is <laughs> violating the separation of church and yeah. state. That was the other thing. It was Bernie, right? This is like, he's obviously not endorsing the Catholic Church in some way that would be problematic at all for, for yeah. uh, the separation of church. It, and this is, but this is liberal, that kind of juridical approach to Religion is what, you know, does it fall on one side of a line or not? Does it, does yeah, it, be, you know, that, that I, I, I'm not sure if I, I can't remember if I use the word juridical in the, in the piece or not, but like viewing it as like a legal problem of whether it violates some principle of the constitution rather than viewing it politically. Um, so I, I do, the other thing in there is like the liberalism is kind of an anti-political politics, um, and I think that the, those examples I gave were, were two that they just stuck in my mind for months. The t the the post yeah. and Rolling Stone that had like just graded on me for months. <laughs> <laughs> the the Bernie example is, is so is so fascinating because in a way, uh, like Bernie himself made a lot of moral appeals in his own uh, campaign, right? And that's what seemed to register so well. Uh, anytime you talk about. Um, well, you, you opened up talking about this a little bit, you know, desserts, right? Like rich people and poor people, uh, those are, anytime you invoke that distinction, you're starting to invoke questions of who gets what and why and who should, etc. And those are all, they are political questions, they're economic questions, they're judicial questions even, but they're fundamentally moral questions when you start asking what kind of responsibilities do we have to people who fall on the wrong side of capital or something. Um, and it's funny, one thing I thought about as I was reading your article here is that it's almost like that kind of moral um, way of doing politics is exactly what scandalized the Democratic Party um, so, so massively. Mm -hmm. Totally, totally. And that's, you know, uh, my essay was not a um, semi-secret Catholic endorsement of Bernie, <laughs> but <laughs> because he's an imperfect politician and, you know, but but it did it did seem to me that one source of his appeal was just talking to people in relatively straightforward moral language about what was good, what was bad, what corruption was, what was just, you know what uh, you know, and that resonated with people. And it's it's shocking that that just doing something that basic distinguished him from the pack in in the Democratic Party. But it, but it really did, and you can yeah. see that in the Clinton campaign that you know it just. She would tick off a five-point plan, um, but wouldn't just say, "I think people deserve X, Y, or Z." Or at least that, yeah. that's. I mean, maybe she did sometimes. I'm not trying to be too critical or rehash the, you know, the the primaries. But it's that I, I did think that the the way debates within the Democratic Party played out kind of were lurking in the back of this back of my mind as I wrote this essay too, that that what Bernie did was just appeal to people at a fairly straightforward moral level about how we should live together. Yeah, weird how that appeals to people though. Yeah, yeah. Turns out they like uh like when people tell you to be good, um, sometimes. <laughs> uh it's funny because I remember talking to a lot of family. I come from rural Michigan and uh basically my whole town voted for Donald Trump. And the weird thing Sanders, is, in Sanders. the yeah, 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 in the yeah, primaries, well, they did go Sanders in the in the blue, and then Trump in the red, and then when it came down to it, they obviously voted for Donald Trump. But, but when I talk to people when I go home, uh, so many of them, I I ask them the question: If if Bernie Sanders had been running, would you have voted for him? And a lot of them, they don't say yes, but they don't say no, and that's exactly how they feel. It's like, wow, it would have been a really tough decision if that's what it came down to. And it's it's like, but why? I mean. It's absurd. It's clearly not a tough decision. It's a very easy decision. But actually, you know, what, what's being played out there, I think, is this assumption that morality is a part of it. And even though Trump is clearly not a moralistic figure in, by any stretch, uh, there's this language of authenticity that happens with him 
um, that many voters cite, which is clearly, whatever, misinformed. But that's the affect that's getting mobilized there, it seems to me. And then it's it's the same with Bernie, except that uh, he's actually willing to, you know, try to sort of speak a certain language and try to live a certain kind of um, uh, political life, I guess. Yeah, no, totally. Uh, my own experiences uh, inform this essay, and I think they map onto what you described pretty well. I mean, where I grew up, in central Pennsylvania, the county where I grew up went 72% for Trump. And during the primaries, uh, I mean, but Bernie also won my county in the Democratic primaries, uh, the same county, right. county that went for Trump so overwhelmingly in the general. And I, I'll just put it this way. I, most, of my, most of my family members voted for Trump, I think, or at least a number of them did. And without getting too specific... Um, well, I guess I mentioned this in an essay that I, the, the last essay I wrote for Descent last summer on growing up in a certain blue-collar conservative uh, place and culture. And, you know, like, like my mom, she's a Republican, largely because she's pro-life. But when Bernie said, oh, you know, you shouldn't go bankrupt if you get cancer, uh, that resonated <laughs> with her because, you know, her 81-year-old mother's... Um, in hospice care right now with Alzheimer's. So she knows that medical bills can destroy a family. You know, she's, she's writing checks with my grandfather to, you know, cover some of the costs of this. And she knows how much, uh, you know, uh, Medicare is helping my grandmother. All, all these things are, she, she's aware of them. Uh, and when, when a politician just said, it's wrong for you to go bankrupt if you get sick, like something simple as that, that really resonated with her because she's a, you know, just a, 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 an ordinary person who has to deal with these things day in and day out, like like we all do. And that made sense to her. You know, a, 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 a technocratic 10-point plan on what uh, doing this or that to the Affordable Care Act does not appeal to her in the same way. Right. As just a straightforward <laughs> moral appeal. I mean, we see the same kind of thing playing out in like the with the whole Jeremy Corbyn situation, like with the Labor Manifesto. People, totally. People are just like they're mobilized by that, like you know, like um, th- that that they would have health care, that they have access to education and stuff like that. Those things are important to people, and mm-hmm. it it seems very simple to understand why, but it seems very hard for the Democratic Party to get on board with that. I don't. I know it's baffling. Yeah. I can't make any sense of that. Yeah. Uh, but no, Corbyn's another great example. And the, the thing he and Bernie both do is, again, uh, it's like jargon-free, straightforward, moral language about what people deserve by virtue of, of just being a human being who, you know, <laughs> is a citizen of the same country as you. Yeah, right. Basically, like, oh, like, you know, you're my fellow citizen. I think this is what you deserve. And it's not a, a, a complicated or technocratic or extremely technical argument. It's just putting it out there in, in straightforward terms about what people deserve. Yeah. Well, um, maybe this is a good time to get into the article a little bit more. Um, sure. Yeah. So uh, starting in probably the worst possible order from almost the last page, um, <laughs> on page 112 uh, of the article, uh, yeah, you, you have a really good line that I thought was pretty good. Um, I will definitely tell it to my students next year when I see them. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, so you say uh, that being religious doesn't mean your politics have already been decided for you. Religion can infuse political debate with a moral urgency that opens up possibilities for political action rather than shutting them down. Uh, So Mm -hmm. that's cool because, uh, at least in my experience, I teach in a small Christian college in southern Illinois. And uh, they, a lot of my students naively think, and a lot of my, like, uh, colleagues too naively think that, that their religion does like have their politics figured out already and just kind of packages it up and gives it to them. But that's mm-hmm. not the case, as you say. Um, mm-hmm. But I wonder what you would say the religious can contribute to the political. Like, what is it that you think the religious gives the political, um, like morally? Okay. Well, it's interesting that that particular line is uh, in the very brief paragraph where I, I mention abortion. <clears throat> and... Um, That was a very complicated, how to handle abortion was a particularly complicated feature of this essay. Um, Because I really, because obviously I think had I just said to the left, the secular left, oh, you know, I I mean, basically now during the Trump administration, I'm not going to turn to my feminist friends and be like, oh, now's the time for you to like get on board with the Catholic 
church's teaching on abortion, <laughs> right? That's savvy of you. Savvy yeah. Of yeah. You. <laughs> um, but, but on the other hand, um, uh, but you know, so I wasn't going to do that, and I and I also just didn't think I would change anyone's mind on that particular issue, and I didn't want to write about it at length. But it seems like when you really get into particulars, like well. Uh, you know, the way the way that particular issue gets played out, it could play out any number of ways. And I feel like, uh, you know, if someone like Bernie had won the Democratic nomination, he would have been straightforwardly pro-choice, of course. But I also think that if you're a, a conscientious religious person, it should really have been a struggle for you to figure out, well, does it, how much does it matter to me that he's also advocating for universal health care coverage? And, you know, like... It just, I basically wanted to say in that paragraph that abort, that single issue politics is wrong and counterproductive and, and simply being religious and even being pro-life uh, does not mean that the abortion issue has to play out for you in one narrow way. Um, and so that line about religion opening up possibilities, uh, that was the context for it. Um, and I think it is true that just because you're religious, and even if you're religious and, and, and pro-life um, and, or anti-abortion, you know, how that practically plays out isn't always determined ahead of time simply by virtue of being religious and pro-life. Does that make sense, to put it that way? That was the, the background yeah, to that. Yeah, it does. And uh, I, I think I appreciate, too, throughout this article, there are a couple of places where you suggest... Um, you know, this is what whatever the church teaches and most Catholics seem to think, but like there are Catholics that don't think that. And uh, it's too simple to kind of narrow things down to, um, you know, whatever the Vatican is, is saying is how every single Catholic you meet at a, you know, socialist meeting is going to feel about this or that issue. Uh, it, it's interesting, too, because as we were talking about earlier, um, it's not as though being uh, pro-choice is uh, an immoral or amoral decision per se, right? It's another kind of set of morality. And what's interesting about uh, religion is that it, it tries to, um, as you say in this quote that we just read, uh, open up certain possibilities for political action with certain vocabularies that, that don't uh, necessarily appeal to average folks elsewhere. And, you know, there, there are ways in which the left can really find... Um, hopefully uh, those vocabularies are amenable to their causes and, and those particular issues shouldn't, um, you know, shouldn't stand in the way of, of starting a conversation with a, say, a Catholic hardline person on this or that issue, uh, especially because, um, you know, there, there's nothing that says if you're Catholic, you definitely always will think this or every Catholic that you meet will always think this forever, et cetera. And that's that's the nature of doing politics together is uh, it's not not pre-programmed. Right, exactly. And, you know, even um, uh, Pope Benedict XVI, uh, at, back when he was Joseph Ratzinger, you know, wrote this letter to uh, oh, I forget some of the precise details, but he even he said you do not have to be a single issue voter on this. Um, there are proportionate reasons to vote for candidates who back abortion rights, uh, you know, and and that it's a complicated moral decision sometimes when when you're faced with someone like Trump who, you know, paid lip service to the pro life cause and nominated Gorsuch to the Supreme Court and you know kind mm -hmm. of is, is is willing to give the Christian right pretty much whatever they want on this, um, you know, just because he does that doesn't mean you have to vote for him because there's many, many other reasons why it'd be terrible, even on pro-life terms, to support this guy, right? So it's a complicated decision. And that was all I really wanted to say in the essay about abortion was that it doesn't, if, if that is the only thing that, um, or if that's a main source of uh, uh, enmity <laughs> between religious lefties and the secular left, I, I think that's a shame because there there's a lot we should agree on, and also again, it just how that plays out in practical terms can be can be can be tricky. Yeah. Also, uh, if we could move to an, an example that's maybe a little less contentious and makes your point <laughs> Good, really well. Well, I'm glad we can move on from the three white dudes talking about abortion yeah. section. <laughs> yeah. 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 Yes. Yeah. Uh, well, that's a weird segue into what I'm about to say, but it's okay. Because <laughs> um, I'm going to bring up uh, your, your example of Martin Luther King Jr., um, who uses uh, religious language. You know, you, you say in here, uh, he has a dream, right? That dream language is... Uh, situated in a particular um, 
religious tradition and community it makes certain moral uh suggestions it, it's tapping into to vocabularies that are familiar with you know moral conscience and what that means and w- what that would motivate you to do and uh there are there are plenty of people in the black radical tradition that i think rightly have criticized king's appeal to the morality of um you know white oppressors and white supremacy uh Asada Shakur being like the most famous one that you know appealing to morals doesn't uh doesn't change history per se but that being said i mean undeniably obviously martin luther king jr uh made significant gains political gains by virtue of using that moral vocabulary and it's not just moral it's also religious um and and those two things come together in an interesting way there not in a way that forestalls you know uh collaborating with people who aren't religious uh but hopefully in a way that that invites those kinds of collaborations precisely by virtue of being religious or whatever yeah totally and you know that the king example too was the, the dr king example was uh one of my old teachers jean beth galstein uh th- that was her line i stole i mean i gave her credit in the essay but you know that, that king didn't <laughs> say i have a preference right he said i have a dream and that line i mean she used to say that all the time and it, it it, it it always stuck with me uh, because I just thought it identified something very basic, but also true that the language of preferences isn't, it's just not powerful, right? It doesn't move people. It doesn't give people hope. It doesn't stir them. It doesn't, you know, keep them fighting for a cause to, to speak the language of kind of neutered technocratic, you know, economistic language, um, you know, yeah. Uh, I, yeah. I have a ten point plan. No, <laughs> it, doesn't, it doesn't work. Right. Yeah. So that's uh, yeah. That was uh, that. That was Jean's. Uh, I mean, Jean's been. She passed away, I think, in twenty thirteen. But that was a, a line of hers that that she used all the time in grad seminars and and when she would talk in public about religion and politics and and I always liked it, so I stuck it in stuck it in the essay. Yeah, and, you know, of course, it doesn't have to be just uh, MLK. It can be Malcolm X, who, of course, is famously motivated by his religion and his morals politically. Uh, we ta- we had an episode a long time ago with a guy named Vincent Lloyd at Villanova who was talking about the Black Panthers and their connections to religion. You know, uh, Huey P. Newton was uh, the son of a preacher, and that left a certain stamp on how he comported himself, uh, I think. So, yeah, uh, it's just, it's complex. Religion is a game of affect, I think, and uh, morality is too, in a lot of ways. And um, I I really like that part of the essay, um, especially. (laughs) I mean, I would even kind of want to underscore that part of the essay more than even the final final version of the essay did, in that uh, I originally had... Um, had a quote from uh, Christian Wyman's memoir, My Bright Abyss. Do you guys know Christian Wyman? The teaches at Yale Divinity. He's a poet. And, and he's playing with, um, I think, George Lindbeck's book on post-liberal Christianity. But the basic point is he said, you cannot, um, you can never be sort of religious in the abstract, right? You're like, re- there's a certain sense in which you're really, the depth of your religion is tied to a, always to a particular tradition and to go deeper into that tradition is, is to kind of go deeper into particularity and that, and that the kind of dream, the liberal dream of kind of neutral universal public reason actually kind of cuts directly against that deep engagement with a tradition that actually gives you kind of like moral depth and nuance and complexity. Um, and that was one of the points I was trying to make there, that, there, that you're, uh, any, any moralistic politics will always draw on particularistic traditions, because that's what, that's what like, any real <laughs> religion is, is a, is a particularistic tradition. Right. It, um, this whole conversation, like in the background of my head, I've been thinking about this like one weird essay from Kant that I read once. I'm not like a good, I, I've read like two things by Kant. And Manu Kant in my entire life, and this is like one of them. <laughs> and it's uh, this essay he wrote about like uh, about private and public reason, and about like when to use either of them. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's like this really absurd way of being a person in the world. <laughs> uh, mm-hmm. So he, the the um, <laughs> the example that sticks out to me uh, so much is like 
Kant is like explaining like this military person where he's like uh, this military person has these like um, reasons to object, I guess, to military service or, or something like that. That that comes to, that kind of stem from his private reason. And Kant's like, yeah, that's fine. He can have those, but he shouldn't ever let them bleed into his like the, his life of public service. And that same that same like Kantian logic of like keeping those things super separate is exactly why I see expressed in like uh, I guess center liberalism. Yeah, totally. Um, and this is, and and a lot of that discussion led into the example of, like the Tim Kaine example was was one that really, well, th- illustrates this well in the sense of, so I, I make the point that there's no kind of like neutral universal moral language really that you'll that the moralizing politics will draw on particular traditions in a certain kind of way, but also that we shouldn't view that as the end of the story that you 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 just kind of make public arguments and you kind of just be honest about where you're coming from and what your commitments are and other people do the same and you try to figure it out, right? Like even Tim Kaine's example of, of the death penalty, um, where he said, oh, I didn't feel comfortable doing X, Y, or Z as governor of Virginia because I didn't want to impose my faith on, you know, the rest of the citizenry of Virginia. It's like, well, how much, it almost makes it seem like faith in that sense is this absurdist like leap into, you know, it's just totally like, <laughs> like totally beyond reason. Yeah. And, and, and actually, no, like your moral commitments and your religious commitments interact with sort of facts on the ground in a certain kind of way. Like we know certain things about the death penalty, right? That it's, uh, you know, uh, inequitably applied and that African-Americans get it, are sentenced to that, you know, proportionally far more than uh, white citizens. And that, if you make a mistake, it's irrevocable. And there's all these reasons against the death penalty that don't have anything to do with religious faith per se. And actually, you know, the Catholic Church does not demand you be 100% against the death penalty all the time, right? So, so obviously, reason is factoring into this. And that Tim Kaine's own position on the death penalty is not simply his unthinking adherence to Catholic dogma, <laughs> right? And it, it actually interacts with the real world and kind of like like I said, the facts on the ground and, and different reasons to be against it in all kinds of interesting ways. And therefore, I, I, you know, maybe, maybe he was right. Maybe, again, there's all kinds of particularities in this case where as, as governor, you know, uh, you, you are kind of given a certain power that's not, um, you know, like maybe you shouldn't just unilaterally say, I'm not going to enforce this or that. Uh, but what I would want to say is, okay, Tim Kaine, if you were a legislator in the Virginia legislature, would you vote for an anti-death penalty measure, right? Because that, that, take, that takes away the kind of weirdness of being governor and having this like, decision solely thrust on your shoulders. But like, would, you, would he feel the same way if, if, if he was voting for a piece of legislation that restricted or abolished the death penalty? Would he still be like, oh, I can't vote for that because I'm a Catholic right. or because, because, because my opposition is grounded in the Catholic faith? Well, what's wild about this, though, is that like this, this is the very reason that evangelical Christians like actually vote for Republicans is because they will do these things. <laughs> it's like Tim, right. Tim Kaine isn't willing to do the moral thing, but like uh, evangelical Christians will vote for Mike Pence or whatever for, I don't know, mm. doing something horrible and stupid uh, that's yeah. uh, justified by faith or whatever. So it's just this weird thing where, like, I don't know, Republicans are, are ready to get down with uh, with with a, a quote unquote religious morality, but Democrats uh, can't hang at all. Yeah, even yeah. If, and, and here's the other thing, like lots of people on the left oppose the death penalty for non-religious reasons. And I, I'm sort that's of right. like, in a way, who cares what your reasons are? Yeah, I mean, I, I mean, that's I, that's a bit flippant. But like if if when I say I, you know, one thing I like about the left is they actually think politically you know, this is what I mean. Like, okay, like I am against the death penalty in part because that's what my faith, you know, demands of me or, or it nudges me in that direction or pushes me in that direction. But lots of other people oppose the death penalty for different reasons. And I don't know why having different reasons behind agreeing on the substance of an issue should, you know, I, I just don't know why religious people should back away from that because obviously there are 
many reasons to oppose the death penalty. Yeah, so let's start. Let's talk a little bit about coalition building because that's always a difficult uh, thing for people on the left. Uh, the the perennial challenge, I guess, around the world is that the right is extremely unified. That you know, private property is very good, and capitalism is the thing that should win all the time. And the left is not very unified on what it wants to do about those problems. Uh, so you make some appeals throughout this essay that make common sense, right? We gotta we gotta think really hard about how left liberal coalitions could operate, despite the fact that they're you know uncomfortable bedfellows, I guess. Um, and you make one uh, specific comment. Um, about you say on one twelve to one thirteen, uh, right after what we were just kind of talking about, actually, you say the secular and religious left should work together on the other issues they do agree on. It's in the nature of political coalitions, after all, to live with a certain amount of disagreements, um, and that's like a, a good thing, I think. But this is where I guess I find a little bit of trouble. Um, cozying up to talks of coalition building with liberals in particular because it's not based on like a shared end in a sense like there are short-term gains that make sense and that leftists can get on board with that liberals are making um but the lo- the long-term end right uh, like if you're a good orthodox leftist whether you're a marxist or an anarchist or a syndicalist or whatever a socialist of any stripe is like the abolition of private property i think um which like the the long term shared goal of all liberals is like the absolute you know retention and and uh, defense of private property, um, so it, it's just like tough. It's not like obviously you know any any leftist who says well we should just never ever talk to uh, the majority of people in the United States like that project is dead in the water. Um, but at the same time, like I don't know. Uh, it's hard to to have those coalitions without acknowledging those like real disagreements because every time the left brings one of them up, the liberals are like, "See, this is why we didn't want to work with them," and they just get screwed. Yeah, no, I don't really disagree with you on that, and I I think at the very end of my piece, I I use some formulation where I say, um, "How do I put it?" Um, religious people, social democrats, the populist left, and compassionate liberals can find agreement on X, Y, or Z. And, and yeah. so I, 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 you know, um, if, if my essay reads as me not making any demands on liberals to kind of move a certain direction as well, then, uh, well, that's not how I would sure, ask, sure. ask it to be read. Um, and, and I would hope that like the kinds of liberals who, uh, well, again, here we come back to the problem of terms and definitions and how precise we're being, but people in the United States who would call themselves liberals, um, you know, there's, there's better and worse versions of that, <laughs> and, you know, and, and if someone's willing to like back uh, single payer healthcare and, um, you know, uh, uh, you know, uh, things like, I don't, I don't know, universal basic income or, you know, I, there's all kinds of different things that you could imagine a certain kind of populist liberal or a, a kind of big hearted, compassionate liberal signing on to. And if, and that's the kind of coalition I, I guess I would mean. Um, but the, but that, that would entail them moving toward the left. But I also, I guess deep down, I kind of think the, the left is winning a lot of these arguments, at least in terms of, um, like, look at how support for single-payer healthcare has skyrocketed in just the last year or so, right? Like, it's, it's never been as popular as it is right now in the United States. And I think that's in part because that's like what happens when you engage in real politics and you make moral arguments, <laughs> like more people. And, and this is a function of the, the Sanders campaign, I think, actually, like he really stuck his neck out and campaigned hard on that. And it caught on and more and more people are talking about it now. And so when I appeal to liberals in the way I did in the piece, I'm kind of banking on that kind of thing happening more and more where the arguments are actually being made. And uh, politics is really happening, and, and you know DSA is organizing, and uh, you know people are rallying around healthcare, and um, I mean that'd be a major issue. And, and I think so. People can change their minds, and I that's partly what I have in the, in my mind when I mentioned liberals in the way Dean pointed out was that that kind of change or shift is possible, and it's more possible and more likely if you do what I say in the essay and actually <laughs> make, make moral, moral arguments that appeal to ordinary people's sense of right and wrong. 
So I I totally get that point, and I think it's I mean I think it's good. I think you're right, uh, largely. I guess there I have like some weird experiences though where where it hasn't played out quite so neatly, and I I guess it never will. Not that I'm accusing you of like saying it would play out neatly because like that's not politics at all. But like uh, I don't know um, there. Uh, so in St. Louis, there's like a there's like a debtors prison basically, um, and uh, it became like really popular in the news a hot second ago because it's uh, just like hot as crap out here. And there's no air conditioning. Anyways, so um, there's this like uh, this thing organized like to like a a vigil or something, you know, to kind of bring attention and awareness to this issue. And uh, it was a pretty clear um, it's a pretty clear demarcation about who was left and who was liberal in that conversation, though, because it's like mm-hmm. people on the left were like, yeah, and like this is this is a pr- this is a prison that shouldn't even exist in the first place. And then like liberals were like, well, it should have air conditioning. Um, so it's like we, we can like agree on certain topics uh for like for a point though but like at, at some point those coalitions like fall apart because i, I don't know liberals aren't leftists <laughs> I, I don't know yeah it's just it's messy and it's hard i guess like mm-hmm. you just you just choose your battles and win them when you can um yeah. And then like, yeah let go i guess when you can't yeah i don't want to belabor the point either but um I guess I would just want to add, this is the problem with Bernie Sanders. I mean, I've been trying to be very friendly uh, to him lately, more friendly than I've been in the past, because I don't want to be, like, that mean leftist on the internet. But, uh, you know, like, Bernie Sanders also doesn't really want to end private property. Like, he wants to break up the big banks. Uh, like, sorry, if you're a leftist, you, like, you want bigger banks, and then you want to turn them into, like, state institutions. Like, nationalize the banks. Don't, like, break them up into, you know, better, well-functioning, like, humble capitalist banks. Um... And, you know, th- those are, like, real problems. And uh, one one thing that really jumped out to me when I was reading your essay is actually precisely the moral point with respect to things like private property. Um, there's an early essay by Friedrich Engels. This is, like, a very pedantic point, and I'm sorry to make it, but, like, I just have to. Uh, so he has this really early essay Engels does, um, Outlines of a Critique of Political Economy. And uh, <laughs> I remember this essay is like one of the things that turned me into a, a leftist when I was a, a Christian at an evangelical school. Um, and uh, he makes this this interesting comment that I went back to and read. I'll just like read part of it really quick. So he says, uh, the perpetual fluctuation of prices, such as is created by the condition of competition, completely deprives trade of its last vestige of morality, right? So he's talking about how like, hey, if you got to compete with other people, you're inevitably going to compromise your your morals to do that. Um, and then he goes on to say, uh, where does there remain any possibility of exchange based on a moral foundation in this whirlpool of capitalism? In the continuous up and down, everyone must seek to hit upon the most favorable moment for purchase and sale. Everyone must become a spectator or speculator, that is to say, must reap what he has not sown, must enrich himself at the expense of others, calculate on the misfortune of others, or let chance win for him, etc. Right? Not, not uh, mind-blowing points. But as he goes on to say in the essay, that all relates to private property and almost reducibly, um, like he says uh, throughout this whole um, whole thing that like once we get rid of private property, not going to have to deal with that problem. Like immorality will still be there, but uh, not because of the competition, which forces you into that. So, yeah, I guess that's just a long way of saying uh, moral austerity. Um, that's like uh, it can only be solved by the abolition of a system premised on on competition. I guess that's like my leftist point that stops me from being friends with Bernie Sanders. No, that's, that's a, a, a fair point, I guess. And, you know, one thing, one of the unsatisfactory things about my essay is that in 3000 words, I kind of move between, I don't know, political philosophy in some senses, right. Talking about the separation of powers and, you know, the kind of liberalism as a philosophy or political philosophy, and then day to day contemporary politics. Right. I move between those two things in ways that, you know, aren't satisfactory. So you're you're not necessarily wrong. But, you know, in fact, when I when I before I started writing this, when when Michael Kazin of Descent first reached out to me, he he was like, so like, how can we maybe win some of these religious people who keep voting for Republicans? You know, (laughs) and 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 that's not what the essay is about. But there was it was kind of generated by a certain practical concern. So. I, on the other hand, I would say, like, if moving forward and improving the lives of lots of people depends on the abolition of private property, we're going to be waiting a long time in this country. <laughs> <You know? laughs> yeah, sure. So yeah. it's it's like, you know, you're not wrong, but it's also, 
that's a big that's a, a a deep and profound critique of the entire way our lives are organized right now and it's like where how do you where do you start in terms of unraveling that and i don't know i think uh you know my essay points to some things but it's you're right it doesn't give the the radical root and branch critique of of our entire system right now but i would also <laughs> say like I would also say too, like there is something aspirational about the essay in that um, one thing I don't do is like crunch a bunch of numbers and say like, oh, like certain percentage of people are religious and like want this kind of healthcare system or a certain number of people are religious and could end up voting this way or that way. It's more like, I think if you build it, they will come. Like there are, there are a lot of religious people in this country and I don't think they've been even presented with ideas resembling some of the stuff we're talking about. So I don't, I kind of don't know what's possible, but I feel like if, if more and more people are confronted with, you know, like I said, this is a country with a lot of Christians in it, a lot of religious people. And if more and more people are just find themselves confronting arguments um, that they haven't really heard before about how their faith can relate to politics, maybe you know, maybe the needle starts to move a little bit in a good way. Um, yeah. Does that make sense to put it that way? Like there, there is something aspirational here. Like if you build it, they will come. That's yeah. if, if you talk this way, it might resonate. And especially like there has to be people out there who have voted their entire life for the Republican Party and are just they have to be thinking like, what the hell has happened? What's really <laughs> going on? Like and people are have to be asking themselves that right now. Maybe yeah. maybe Trump's diehard supporters aren't, but I think this is a moment that's fluid and uncertain, and and we should be bold in making these arguments because you don't really know what the effects will be, um, but they they could be more than you think, and I think there are possibilities that are open now that maybe for the last twenty or thirty years weren't really open. Well, going off what you just said, I guess about you know there has to be people there have to be people who are religious who are like wondering like what is going on. Uh, with the Republican Party and like what's going on morally, I guess, in politics, in the United States. Um, it, it leads me to, I guess, a question um, that maybe you can help answer. Um, in your essay, you actually like reference a lot of pretty good Christian leftists, uh, like Reverend Barber and uh, Robert, uh, Robert uh, McElroy and um, a few, a few others, I think that are in there, but I can't remember off the top of my head. <laughs> um, anyways, so they're, they're actually like, there was a time when there was a religious left, um, a Christian left, I guess, to be specific with the people we're talking about here. Um, so I wonder like what you would say about like where, where they went <laughs> and like, uh, what you think the, like a possible future is for the Christian left. Oh, wow. You know, I don't, the history, the history is like, I'm not a historian. And I think what you basically said was right. Um, and there, and there are, there, there has, there was historically something of a, a Christian left, you know, in different iterations through the decades, right? I mean, social gospel stuff, um, various critics, critics of capitalism, uh, civil rights movement, uh, anti-nuclear movement. You know, there, there have been these, you know, sort of flashpoints that have highlighted the existence of a Christian left. I don't really know what the possibilities are for it. I mean, I've, one, I like I said, I sort of. I went out of my way to avoid some of those questions, like counting numbers and sort of yeah. saying, oh, like this, this exists, therefore X, Y, or Z is possible. Um, um, so I, I'm very heartened by someone like Reverend Barber, who's, who's obviously an amazing man doing great work. And I'm really heartened by people like uh, Bishop McElroy in San Diego, um, uh, you know, who really, I mean, that speech he gave in Modesto that I give a brief excerpt from at the end of the essay, I mean, that's really worth reading in full. I mean, that yeah, was probably, was that was about as strong a statement against Trump and Trumpism as I've heard from like anyone, <laughs> really, yeah. uh, since he was uh, elected and, and then inaugurated. So, um, so I do think there are, maybe I'm trying to have it both ways. I do think there's possibilities you can point to, like a Reverend Barber, like a Bishop McElroy. But I also, I wouldn't want my argument to be contingent on them. Because like I said, I, I, what, I'm, what I tried to give was a framework for one way this might play out, one way we might think and argue about it. And uh, I don't know if it exists, but I think it should. And I think it's possible that, it, that, that what I described, um, you know, 
uh, uh, comes into being in a, in a way that it's not right now. And so, like I, like I said before, there is something aspirational about this. Because I had read a bunch of pieces that kind of did count heads and tried to say, oh, like, like liberal people don't go to church as often or you, you, those kinds of demographic statistics. And I, well, I, there is one thing I should say. The, the point about what people deserve, the question of dessert, I mean, that, I don't really say this in the essay, but that really does come out of conversations I've had with, with my lefty friends who aren't religious at all. And, we, and, you know, it's the left who, you know, the, the people in red states who voted for Trump who now might have their health care destroyed or taken away. Yeah. Like, it's the people on the left saying, actually, you know, um, it's really horrifying to say, like, oh, that's what those people deserve. They voted for him now. Let them get their comeuppance. Yeah. You know, it's, it's like it's, it's those kinds of conversations where it's always been my, my friends, even comrades, shall I say, on the left who, who, who say that again and again. And I found, you know, points of agreement with them in conversations over beers, right, talking about these things. And that was, always, that was the point that really came out the most was just that shared sense of what, what people deserve. That was the that was the the point of contact between myself and and my friends who aren't religious, but uh, you know uh, do identify as being on the left. Yeah, it's even like a it's always kind of like a like a a moment with some friction in it too. When when someone will ask, I don't know, like what do, like what does Trump deserve or what does Pence deserve? And it's like, well, they deserve the same thing that like everyone does, I guess, like universal health care and <laughs> like uh, I don't, uh, uh, access to education. That'd be great. I, I don't know. It's just like, um, I guess that is a kind of a moralistic moment though. Um, where leftists have to be kind of hard, hard lined about that. Like if, yeah. if, if uh, the left deserves it, the right does too. Mm-hmm. And uh, sometimes it doesn't sit well with people on the left. Yeah, it does not sit well with me. I just, I just think uh, Trump ruthlessly deserves like, m- you know, mocking and uh, like a tragic, tragic rest of his life. But that's a, that's a like moral problem that I recognize. So. <laughs> well, I mean, like, you can, you can mock him relentlessly, but still like make sure he can uh, go to the doctor or something. Yeah, I guess. He, he'll, I guess. will need to get some. Uh, let me get some burn, burn cream from all those, uh, those sick burns you got. <laughs> Thank you, Matt. I appreciate yeah. that. You're welcome. All right. Um, well, Matt Sitman, uh, thanks so much for joining us. It's been a really good conversation. I think uh, it's been nice to the last few episodes. We've just been talking about, you know, the left and Christianity in general. So we did one on the left and then one on Christians. So this is a good conversation that we where we were able to bring some of that together, I think. And, I don't know. Hopefully, it's it's helpful, especially for uh, for people on both sides of that issue, just trying to find ways to, you know, build the kind of actual movement that we still like desperately need and hasn't fully materialized. Yeah. No. No. Thanks for having me. It was fun to talk about it. And you know, things things are really bad out there. I like like I take a, <laughs> I take a pretty dire view of the Trump presidency and what he's doing to to the country and our institutions and you know, just the prospects of, for, for anything resembling meaningful self-government. So I'm kind of like, you know, let's, let's just make these arguments and hope they stick. And why hold back or why be afraid? Like, you know, I know my essay will upset some people and, you know, um, talking about religion and politics, the two things you're not supposed to talk about in polite company. <laughs> right? <It's, laughs> well, uh, well, we'll see you in the pages of Commonweal, hopefully, uh, you know, converting the, the Catholics to the left uh, in the meantime. Yeah, that's, <laughs> that's, that's phase two of the project. Is uh... <laughs> Hey, thanks for listening to this episode of the Magnificast. Thanks again, Matt Sitman, for sitting in with us. This is really fun. Uh, if you want to get involved more with us, you can follow us on all the things we've on, we're on Twitter. We've got a blog. We, uh, we have a letter now newsletter. So don't forget about that. We've got email. We've got Facebook. We've got it all, all the things you could do. Um, we're training pigeons as we speak. Uh, <laughs> they're not very good yet. So who knows how that's going to go. But, um, yeah, Magnificast in your real life mailbox delivered by real life pigeons, uh, <laughs> coming soon. Um, <laughs> uh yeah uh i don't know any any real final thoughts here matt nope (laughs) okay good uh as always we're gonna go ahead and uh, let the illogical spoon play us out here and we'll see you next time bye
Get up for church in the morning, church in the morning, souls alive. Heaven come to earth and there won't be no church. We'll meet down by the riverside. There we'll swim with all creation. Never get tired, never bored. Don't worry, someday there'll be no dam between us and our Lord.